Progressive Rugby League. Hey folks, Jono here with a bit of a reboot episode. Reboot, I hear you ask? Well, Australian listeners will know we're on the cusp of a referendum to decide whether we as a nation want to acknowledge our First Nations people in the Constitution by enshrining an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice to Parliament in that very document. Now, I do sense some suspicion, but rest assured I'm not here to tell you how to vote. You be you, you do you. It's just that I, like many of you I imagine... I'm a bit, uh, you know, what's the word, Uh, depressed by the discourse surrounding this thing. And so the other day I decided to revisit an interview I did with Professor Megan Davis from a couple of years ago. And I subsequently found myself thinking, you know what, this still sounds pretty fresh and it still sounds pretty relevant. And I think that's probably because it was recorded outside the din of a campaign. And as a result, I think there's a helpful space and clarity that comes across. And I essentially wanted to reshare it at this time as my very low-key contribution. So, I present to you our interview with Professor Megan Davis from November 2021. It's an edited version of the original that hopefully is an enjoyable listen and maybe provides some context and flesh to some lingering questions that might remain in your or your parents' mind. And the bonus is, it's all wrapped up in a loving rugby league blanket. You can still listen to the full Hour Plus original episode in the feed. There are some great insights into how the Australian Rugby League Commission works, Megan's thoughts on her time in the commission, the women's game, and some of her favourite all-time rugby league moments. But this one is purposefully more focused on the relationship between rugby league and our First Nations, and yes, issues related to the referendum. All right, let's delay no longer and get to it. Let's step back to November 2021. Picture me, Johnny Duncan, nervously sitting at my misfiring laptop, welcoming Professor Megan Davis. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Megan. Such a a thrill to have you on board. Look, to to kick us off, let's get to the story of Rugby League and Megan Davis. Can you tell us a bit about the role Rugby League has played in your life and how your relationship with Rugby League has evolved over your short lifetime to the point where you're an Australian Rugby League commissioner? Yeah, sure. Look, I don't remember any part of my life where rugby league didn't feature prominently. It was something that, you know, my siblings played, my family, relatives always played. We used to watch, you know, rugby league religiously every single game of the round, like probably a lot of rugby league families, Mm. you know, every Saturday, every Sunday. And, you know, rugby league games, the rugby league season, the language, the jargon of the game being used by my brother's you know, it was the vernacular in our house here in Eagleby in Logan City in Queensland mm. throughout, you know, winter. So it's been a huge part of my life. When I moved to Sydney and I was on my own and left my family for the first time, you know, the first thing I did was go and watch a Roosters match at the SFS and continued to watch Roosters matches because I live in the East and I work for UNSW. Mm. And so, yeah, it's, it's always been a mainstay in, in our lives. I think, you know, in our family, education was very important to my mother and education is really key in terms of social mobility for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Mm. And so I think that rugby league played a really important role in structuring my study as well. We used to structure our study across the weekend okay. um, around rugby league games. So, yeah, it's a huge part of my life. Now, Megan, you've been an 
ARL commissioner for, I think, over four years now. What are some of the things that you've been a part of in that time where you've thought, yeah, I'm pretty happy with what we did there? There's a few things, I think. Obviously, joining the commission, I was really interested in, you know, rugby league and the role it plays in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community. Prior to joining the commission, I was writing a book on, you know, rugby league's kind of pioneering work in this space. I think it's a very heavy lifter in in the space of recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And Mm. rugby league, since it arrived in Australia, has been inextricably linked to our culture, particularly in Queensland and New South Wales, where it's the religion, right? Rugby league is the religion. Mm. So I've been really proud of the things that I've been able to do in my time in relation to that. I mean, you know, there's been incidents in the past where we really have brought the elite playing group into our decision-making to ensure that they have a voice and feel like they've got a voice and they Mm -hmm. feel like they can talk to us directly about things that affect their lives, including racism. Mm -hmm. Racism is one thing that I think I've been proud to be on the board and combat when it does happen and not everything is always public, Mm. that we've been able to be very resolute about our culture and our values, which is not to tolerate racism and to work hard to combat racial discrimination. And that's very important. And I think it's you know, publicly known a lot of the work that we did do in relation to some really serious racist incidents in the past Mm -hmm. with players and to work with media outlets to talk about the ways in which they report on race and racism, you know, can have a impact upon a particular player or playing group. Now, Megan, let's get to the relationship a bit deeper between First Nations and and Rugby League. What are your your thoughts on that relationship? You hear a lot about how there's a connection that's been built over generations. We had Dr Heidi Norman on the show earlier this year and she took us through some of that history in New South Wales. But how do you reflect on that relationship between the First Nations and Rugby League? Yeah, it's a... I mean, I love Heidi's work, I should say, from the outset. She's an exemplary First Nations historian and particularly when it comes to New South Wales Rugby League and Mm. career knockout. Like I said, I started working as a scholar, not, I mean, I'm a constitutional lawyer, so it's a bit outside of my area of expertise, although, you know, I have a Bachelor of Arts in Australian History, but what I am fascinated in is the deep connection between Aboriginal First Nations cultures, especially in Queensland and New South Wales and the Torres Strait and, and definitely a lot of the Northern Territory Mm. between those Aboriginal communities and rugby league and the role that it played when it arrived in Australia. One of the reasons I think I stumbled, I didn't stumble upon it, but I was reading my grandfather's file from the Queensland archives. So I don't know if your listeners are aware, but Australia um, had a very lengthy period in its history of racial segregation where Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander, mainly Aboriginal people were moved off Mm. country, often at gunpoint, Mm. and put into reserves or or missions. So Mm. reserves were state-run and missions were church-run. And missions were actually a piece of land that had barbed wire around it. And then they had dormitories for, you know, men and women, girls and boys. And people lived off rationed food and... You know, people worked, but um, the money that they earned from working was put into an account that was controlled by the protector, who we would know today as the local policeman. Right. And mostly those salaries were never returned to them. Mm. That's a whole other story. 
So the reserves emissions were really brutal and when we our constitution came into being in 1901, we kind of moved into this and celebrated this early Australian nationhood. Mm. But at the, sa- at the very same time, Aboriginal nations were being moved off their country and moved onto these reserves and missions. So they kind of happened around the same time, although the protection era started in the mid-1800s, really. Mm-hmm. But when Federation happened, virtually everybody was moved onto missions and reserves. Mm. And so not long after they were moved on there, so that was about 1901, and then Rugby League arrived in Australia, and that was about 1908, mm-hmm. there was this very huge take-up of rugby league in Aboriginal communities, which I found really curious. And I, the reason why I stumbled upon it was because of the articles in the archive in my grandfather's folder. Right. Um, and I was meeting with the chief archivist in Queensland about, you know, she basically knows every family in Queensland. Mm-hmm. She, and, then you know, you can apply for your files and they give you the file because Australia kept really detailed Sorry, Queensland kept really detailed records of the frontier. Mm. And so, you know, you can see all of these terrible letters that my grandfather used to have to write just to, you know, use his money to buy a, a blanket or a lamp. You know, you'd have to write and they would say whether or not you're a well-behaved native or whether you drank too much or whether you weren't entitled to it or just make arbitrary decisions. And wow. Anyway, these files are huge, right? Mm. And, and she knew I was from Sherberg and she gave me this collection of news articles that had been put on trove about rugby league and Frank Fisher, uh, who is the great rugby league player from Sherberg. Mm-hmm. And so it was from there I was like, oh, this is really interesting. And she said, you know, more and more as Queensland, it's not just Queensland, but right across the country, they digitise more and more of, clo- of the colonial newspapers, although this was post-Federation, the more and more we're getting a better insight into things that happened during that frontier period. So you're starting to see now in history books the numbers of Aboriginal people killed in the frontier in Queensland skyrocket mm. because the numbers were so, in a very precise fashion, recorded in all the newspapers. Mm. So with all this advanced technology, it's it's much easier to trace how rugby league arrived in these reserves and missions, the very complex relationships between Aboriginal men and those chief protectors. Mm. And they were brutal places, mostly, where people were really subjugated it is regarded as a time of great oppression, but for the opportunity, this singular opportunity of men to play rugby league. And so you would have Aboriginal men playing either in the local white team and then going back to the reserve, uh, but getting permission to play, or full Aboriginal teams playing. But either way, it's a really fascinating story. It's not a Pollyanna story, but it's a fascinating story of coexistence. Mm. And, you know, there's some amazing, amazing rugby league administrators and men and ex-players that I've met and and women since my time on the commission that just from, you know, being in and around Aboriginal people and players over the course of their lives and their Mm. clubs just have a really incredible kind of understanding of, of this connection, deep connection between rugby league and Aboriginal people in a way that I don't find in any parts of the other parts of the country. And, mm. and, and so I suppose one of my concerns as a rugby league kid, I suppose, is the way in which, you know, the AFL likes to market themselves as, as this Aboriginal game mm. when, in fact, you know, nothing could be further from the truth. It's quite Whereas the myth, rugby isn't league it? actually has an incredibly authentic and real relationship 
between this sport and our people and the role it played in, um, you know, I use this language of emancipation. Mm. I mean, you can use it in many contexts, right, but there's this freeing capacity of rugby league for those men for those brief periods. I don't want to over-egg it, mm. but there's something really extraordinary about that, and it's not written about enough. It's not spoken about enough. I think Heidi Norman's work is excellent, mm. and I hope she continues to do that, but... It's something that's very difficult to describe. You know, one of the first people that reached out to me when I joined the commission was Dennis Watts, like just texted me immediately saying, I'm so thrilled and I'm so proud of you joining the commission and said that he'd played with my cousin actually in Harvey Bay when he was a kid. And so there was that connection there. And of course, he's gone on to have a terrific career operationally with the Broncos and um, obviously he's the executive chairman of the Titans. Mm. But just, you know, just having someone like that reach out and he really understands Aboriginal culture and there's a lot of people and a lot of people like that right across the club businesses that understand that deep connection between Aboriginal people and rugby league and it just makes me really incredibly proud to be a part of the sport. Mm. Megan, I mentioned in the intro about your involvement, uh, fairly pivotal involvement in delivering the Uluru Statement from the Heart. And actually, one thing I didn't mention in the intro was that you're also a, a 2021 Sydney Peace Prize laureate for your work on the statement. We're well past the fourth anniversary of that moment now. If you were chatting to footy fans, say, on the hill in Wollongong or the terraces of Townsville, how would you try and convey why getting behind the Uluru Statement from the Heart is so important? For this country, because you know, I think a big chunk of the population, even if they're they're sympathetic to the cause, that they see all this talk of statements and voices, and it all seems fine, but maybe a bit abstract. Um, so, how do you cut to the heart of the matter and and speak to everyday Australians and footy fans about why they should get behind it? I think it's a really good question. So, one way of conveying it is to reflect on COVID, at least the beginning of COVID, mm-hmm. and you know, you had this kind of pandemic that. I don't think many of us, any of us, had lived before. Mm. Before That's not very articulate, but let me keep going. <laughs> and um, when it came time to, you know, think about what are, what are we going to do to protect our community, the Prime Minister, you know, went to the experts, right? They went, he went to epidemiologists, health mm. professionals, health experts, and said, what do we do to protect our community? And, and that's where lockdown came from. And then when it came to opening up the lockdown, he went to the business sector and to economists and said, how do we reopen the economy? Mm. What do we do to mm. arrest the economic damage? And they gave him advice. And then when the Prime Minister needed to contemplate what to do about Aboriginal communities, the most vulnerable communities in the country, he went to the Aboriginal sector and we'd already shut our communities down. Mm. And I think what's really important about the first initial lockdown is no one in our communities got sick and nobody died. Mm. Um, and part of that was self-determination. That is to say, when we have control over our own communities, we can be really effective in delivering the government's policy. Mm. And one of the problems that we have in Australia, and it is the reason why we haven't closed the gap, it's the reason why that disadvantage is not being arrested despite 10 years of closing the gap and it's real government attention and mm. effort, Mm-hmm. It's because there's very few Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people at the table. You know, the bulk of the people at the table are non-Indigenous experts talking on our behalf. Mm. And up until a couple of years ago, Ken White's agency, the Minister for Indigenous Affairs, didn't even have a single Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person in it. No. So the policies are designed by non-Indigenous people. 
They're executed by bureaucrats who are non-Indigenous. And nowhere along the line is there a requirement for them to talk to the actual affected communities to ask them, you know, what should we be doing in this space? If you did that, you would have better quality laws and policies that might actually make a difference to people's lives. Mm. But the problem is this. The Commonwealth Government isn't going to consult Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people if they don't have to. Yeah. And so right now they don't have to. And the problem that we have is the situation is getting worse. And so in relation to constitutional recognition, 10 years ago the Commonwealth came to us and said, all right, we want to recognise you in the Constitution. You know, how do you want it done? So we had a process, told them in 2012 what we wanted, and they said no. And then they ran another process in 2017. By this time, people were really despairing, and they just kept saying, we don't have a voice. Mm. The sense of voicelessness is palpable, but it actually has an impact on our communities, not just in terms of health, but the policies being applied to us and misaligned because they're ones that aren't working because you're not involving local people. Mm. And so, you know, the whole thing about the voice is about setting up a provision in the Constitution that compels the Commonwealth to have us at the table when it makes laws and policies about our lives. And so, really, the reform is very light-handed in the Constitution. It's just setting up the power Mm. to have us at the table and that the Parliament has to put meat on the bones of what that looks like So if any Australian was concerned about what that provision in the Constitution will lead to, then they, as long as they've got faith in the Parliament to be able to do the right thing there, Mm. then they they should be confident that this reform will actually lead to better policies Mm. and better better quality policies and better quality laws. And what that means then is that we will start to see the gap closing and we will see less money having to be spent in this sector, because currently the money in the sector isn't going to communities. One of the biggest government policies is a business policy for Aboriginal businesses. Hmm. Now, that's not hitting the ground. That's not hitting grassroots communities. It's great for those people who can participate, but even the government policy settings are are just policy settings that aren't influenced by Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people. So that's not very simple. That's a constitutional lawyer's answer, right? That's why they hire me as a constitutional <laughs> lawyer and I'm not the com- I'm not a cop <laughs> I do know Australians know mm. that governments don't always get it right and they sure as hell don't listen always to what we have to say. And I think climate change is a good example where most Aussies can feel us burning mm. up, actually, and all you see in Canberra is this kind of idolatry of fossil fuels. Mm. I think most Aussies can start to see the disconnect there. Regional Aussies understand what we say because they're always ignored. Mm. So people can understand what it's like to have their voice ignored by government. Mm. All we're saying is that this tiny little constitutional change that we've never attempted in this country will have a huge impact in terms of fixing that Now, it doesn't bind the government, but it allows us to have our voice. And that is all we're asking for, is let us have a say. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's quite a simple concept for decisions that are made in terms of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, have them at the table. Quite simple, I guess, yeah. Now, Megan, you've recently co-authored a book with George Williams called Everything You Need to Know About the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Now, I assume there's only one George Williams, so great, Philip, to have the former Raiders halfback on board for that. Now, there's, <laughs> there's a quote I'd like to share from the book, and it's a short one. 
surveys of the Australian public show a disturbing lack of knowledge about the Constitution. Look, Megan, to that, I'd just like to say guilty. My American friends talk with gusto about their Constitution and the amendments, and I'm nodding along but thinking, you know, guys, dial it down a bit. But but seriously, how do you communicate the importance of all the relevance of the Constitution to Australians, including rugby league fans for people who want me to stick to rugby league? Uh, what's the big deal about the Constitution? <laughs> so, look, the Australian Constitution is a fascinating document because really, I guess in some way it's like the... Actually, I've got a partner who's a rugby league journal and sports journal and hates me doing this. I always explain <laughs> constitutional legal matters to him in rugby league terms. Oh, beautiful. I'm patronising him. So... <laughs> But it is like a rule book, right? It tells you what you can and can't do on the field. Okay. Um, And most Australians know intimately the workings of the Constitution after COVID, right? And that is to say, what powers has the Constitution given the states and what powers has the Constitution given the Commonwealth? Mm. And all of the national cabinet and the kind of fighting between the states and the Commonwealth and states and states, that is all framed by the Constitution because of the tensions that exist in there. Mm -hmm. So the Constitution really frames everything, everything that we do in our lives. So what it does is it takes multiple subject matters that affect our lives from criminal law, I don't know why I chose that first, criminal law, (laughs) to health, to education, to fishing in the sea, you name it, and they break those powers up between the states and the territories and the commonwealth. Right. Um, and so everything we do, and especially in COVID, was dictated by either a state law or a commonwealth law. And so I think things to do with shutting down the state, for example, that is power that is given to the states to decide. So the mm. commonwealth can't decide that for the states. And then most of the health powers and the health sector is state business, except for the fact that the commonwealth now, it certainly wasn't envisaged in 1901, but the Commonwealth uses all of its cash through the GST and other grants to dictate what states can and can't do. Mm. So there's these constant tensions playing out between the states and the Commonwealth government. And I think most Australians are probably sick of that, actually, by now, two years later. <laughs> but all of that is constitutional. So a lot of people will be like, why can't they just get on with it? Well, they, they can't because the Constitution says, you know, Morrison does this and the Constitution says that Anastasia does that. And that's all driven by the Constitution. So the COVID period has been a fascinating period for constitutional lawyers mm-hmm. to watch the ways in which Australians have grappled with that. Beautiful. Thank you for that. Very educational. The Constitution is a rugby league rule book. That, uh, that helps me. <laughs> that helps me a lot. The Constitution is a rugby league rule book. <laughs> Do I get that There's right? so many things I can hear people saying, what about this? Yeah, no worries. What about the bunker? <laughs> what about the bunker? Okay, that's a state issue, the bunker, obviously. It's not a Commonwealth issue. We're not, we're not discussing the bunker. <laughs> no worries. That's um, another yeah, exactly. Megan, uh, it's clear that First Nations NRL players as a cohort are perhaps more openly engaged with their culture than past generations may have been. I recently saw the excellent documentary Aratika, starring Dean Witters, about his dream to see the Australian Kangaroos and other Australian sporting teams perform a, a cultural dance or performance before sporting occasions, like the rest of the Pacific does. Uh, excellent film, by the way. How do you reflect on this trend of being more engaged with one's culture? Uh, I don't know if trend's the right word. Is it a sign of progress? Is it part of a, a broader societal trend towards identity, perhaps? Uh, what's your reading about, about this? Yeah, I think a lot of us reflect on this 
you know, there's a lot of older players that grew up in a period where, you know, they just copped a lot of racism and said nothing mm-hmm. and or they were ashamed of their Aboriginality and didn't want to identify. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of that is probably proximity to that protection era yeah. and the moving out of reserves and missions to kind of, well, there was this assimilation period, but then there was this self-determination period too. Either way, I think that there's been an evolution over time or progression probably is a better word. And, and, you know, we're all tremendously proud to see the way in which the current cohort of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander players are so proud of their culture and they identify as a collective or a cohort and very engaged in their culture and very engaged with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander fans and community orgs. And, and so many of this current cohort are really heavy lifters in terms of community contribution and the time that they do give to community and I think there's a few things to say about it you know Mm. like I'm really proud of all of them Cody Luttrell I'm really proud that we are at a position in our culture that our young people can feel you know empowered to talk up and identify and be proud and we know and we've discussed with them that there has been a backlash that has come from certain parts Mm. of the public and that is really difficult, you know. I mean, it's difficult to be an Aboriginal leader. I remember the early days of my work on constitutional reform and just the hate mail. Wow. It's shocking when it first happens, eh? Like, and you're told, matter-of-factly, by other senior Aboriginal leaders to just start a file that we can hand to the police if it gets out of control. And it's like, you know, I'm here, I'm freaking out. <laughs> what the hell? I mean, it's awful because yeah. it's, it, it's something when you get attacked and racism is, when it happens to you, it just it's such a violation of your sense of self. Mm. And it's very easy to say switch on social media because this generation, that's how they communicate. You know, yeah. they're not playing, you know, hopscotch near the bubbles. I don't know why. Just, I've got this very old fashioned image of school now in my head. From <laughs> I, I did exactly that, Megan. <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> Kids today wouldn't even know what we went through. So we're tremendously proud of them. We also know that with profile and with standing up for your people that there's two things. One is that it can trigger a backlash and there are racist people out there in the community who will say racist things. The the second thing is by them standing up and saying they're proud to be Aboriginal, it has this huge impact upon our young people, our young jargons and how they feel about themselves Mm -hmm. and how they see themselves situated in the world. And when they see the Greg Inglises and the Jonathan Thurston's and then, you know, the Latrells and the Cody's, like it just makes them feel more emboldened and proud mm. to do things and to stand up and talk. And so they have actually taught a generation of young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids to step up. If you hear it in the playground, if you hear it, you know, in the classroom, talk up, raise it. Yeah. Because often, and, and this I know applied to my generation and probably a lot of generation of older footballers, is racism is when it's not spoken about openly and brought to the fore, you're taught to shrink yourself, you know, and mm. try and invisibilize yourself even. Mm-hmm. And and by talking about racism, it makes it easier then for people to talk up about it when it happens. Yeah. Um, because, you know, it's a complex thing. But by and large, when people raise an issue and say that it is racist, you know, 98 times out of 100, it is a racist issue. Mm. So, yeah, I think they're more openly engaged than previous generations just because I think society is changing 
I mean, I say that with millions of caveats, I'm sure you understand. Sure. But, you know, you look at Australia's, Australia's got a very sophisticated legal framework around racial discrimination. They had the Racial Discrimination Act was fully implemented in 1975. We've got the Racial Unification Act. It's not okay to say, you can't, people say, you know, free speech, free speech. There's no such thing as free speech. That's there right. are many, many laws set up to say, yeah, you've got free speech, but not violating that act, that act, that act. So you actually you can't say racist things mm. and think you can get away with it because you can't. Mm-hmm. And so in many ways, the work that they do now in stepping up is laying, you know, the groundwork for future change as we move forward. Yeah. Now, yeah. Megan, education, obviously very important to you. I commend to the listeners the Conversations podcast you recorded recently, which tells your story of being a kid from Logan, making your way all the way to the United Nations, and obviously education, a huge part of your life. And when it comes to Australia's history of relations with First Nations, there's a fairly significant blind spot out there. I've mentioned this previously on the show. I'm in my 30s, late 30s, and I learnt basically nothing on that front at school And I know that's changing, but there are generations, my age and older at least, who may not have had much exposure to the war at the frontier, for example, the uncomfortable history since white settlement, the reality of compounding disadvantage, the sophistication of the First Nations society over history, you know, diplomatically, politically, environmentally. So there are many people that may have a broad understanding that there were past injustices, but they may have never really thought that much about it and, you know, why that history is still important or part of the present. So it's a long-winded way of asking, how do you see the role of organisations like the NRL in helping educate the broader public? Now, how far should you guys go to fill potential knowledge gaps? The NRL has a really important role to play um, in, in much the same way as the AFLC. They have a role to play in Soccer Australia. I mean, but in terms of the NRL, what's critical about the NRL is it covers the biggest kind of population in Australia, Queensland and New South Wales, mm. with the biggest cohort of Indigenous people. So there's more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people over here, and they all follow rugby league. And so that kind of relationship between Indigenous peoples and rugby league means that rugby league, you know, has a, a really critical place in educating the broader rugby league population about Aboriginal or First Nations matters. Mm-hmm. So one of the key things the NRL has is a reconciliation action plan, and that's a really solid first step. And I go to a lot of clubs, launches of raps and rap events, and I, I remember just recently the Roosters launch of their rap mm-hmm. was an incredible event. And you go to these things and you see the deep ties and connection clubs like the Roosters and others have to their local Aboriginal communities. So the rap can help in that way but I think in terms of educating the broader public I think the evolution I keep using that word of Indigenous week in terms of our rugby league rounds you know the way in which all of the media partners were able to this happened last year when we first did it announce the local First Nation where the game is played or the ground that it's played at Mm -hmm. it's Aboriginal name the local First Nation Mm -hmm. That kind of thing, it has huge impact upon education of Australians about, you know, important things to do with Aboriginal culture, such as the fact that they view themselves as a nation group. That is the language that they use, that there are over 200-odd on this continent, for example, and it is not just one group, that it's not some kind of monocultural 
group that applies to everyone. Mm-hmm. So we're very different, for example, to the Māori in New Zealand mm-hmm. or Aotearoa. So there's, there's little things that the NRL already does that I think is really important. They do do acknowledgements of country. They do do welcome to country. But I also think increasingly, and this is one of the roles that I think and hope I play on the board, is emphasising to the game the role they do play in being a part of this national conversation about First Nations peoples and, and their place. Mm. So, you know, for example, the Uluru Statement from the Heart, the NRL endorsed it, but that was before I joined the board because all of the Elevate raps endorsed the Uluru Statement. Mm. And so I probably joined about four months after we'd already endorsed it. You know, that's an important thing that the NRL does in saying we support a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. But the NRL says that because effectively we have our own voice enshrined in the Constitution, right? We have our Australian Rugby League Indigenous Council and we consult them on everything that we do when it comes to Indigenous peoples. So mm-hmm. we know intuitively, because our own business does it, the importance of good quality policies as a sporting organisation and you only get that if you're working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples yourself. So there was that synergy there and and the NRL supporting Uluru was really significant, right? The first sporting organisation to take that leadership and many have come on board since but embedded in all of that Uluru work and the rap work is this notion of truth and justice and it's at the core of reconciliation Hmm. and the formula kind of goes like this you know, to to move on in terms of reconciling what has happened, you need to know what truth is. Mm -hmm. So that's the history component. And you need to know what repair looks like to the group who had suffered significant wrong. Mm. So truth can be contested. So it's okay for people to have different ideas of Australian history, but you can agree to disagree. And you can also have a shared narrative and you can move on. And that is the truth component. And I think... There's many ways in which the NRL does that on a daily basis, including the support we give to, you know, research projects or rugby league history in the area of Indigenous peoples. Mm -hmm. You know, we are still working towards a Frank Fisher medal to acknowledge, you know, Frank Fisher and his skill, but all of those men who played rugby league during the frontier period under racial segregation. I mean, it's quite extraordinary, right? Mm -hmm. These incredible men who were exceptional players but, you know, would leave after the siren goes and head back to racial segregation behind barbed wires. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's astonishing history. So in terms of corporate social responsibility, I mean, I think rugby league's always been at the forefront of a lot of social issues. Fundamentally, and at our heart, we're a business. And are there things that we can do, you know, as a business to influence the broader community? Yeah, there are. And I think rugby league's quite advanced actually on that Hmm. it's certainly not the way it's framed always in public discourse but you know as someone who you know has had a 10 year career you know working you know at the united nations on on these matters Hmm. it's an extraordinary sporting organization that you know is pretty kind of frank about our flaws you know we never we're not big on optics and hiding from our flaws and challenges We're, we're very open about that and then a little bit sometimes I think reticent to really promote the really great work that we do. Mm. So in terms of, you know, that question, it's a good question, but I have to say, you know, I always say this, Australia or rugby league is, a, in my view, the heavy lifter of social cohesion in this country. The biggest populations are Western Sydney, South East Queensland, 
that is rugby league towns and cities. Mm-hmm. They are rugby league regions. And this is the game that people watch from affluent people to people in low satisfaction, low income jobs. Yeah, it's yeah. Friday night football, Saturday football, Sunday football, rugby league brings so much to people's lives but more importantly it keeps you know in my view i think it's contribution in terms of multiculturalism and the kinds of tensions that we're able to keep at bay i think i think rugby league is not perfect but it is the work of multiculturalism in this country and mm. the community contribution we make that no one hears about in places like logan city in places like western sydney that nobody hears about our outreach to our incredibly important ethnic cultural communities, our outreach to Indigenous communities. I'm just blown away by all of the things that we do in that social space. And that's quite an incredible contribution to make, I think. And something that all rugby league fans should be really incredibly proud of. Well, Megan, we are out of time now, but... uh... I just want to say it's been such a joy and, and yes, a privilege to have the chance to chat to you. And I know our listeners will get a real kick out of your passion for not only our great game of rugby league, but your passion and, and ambition for making Australia a fairer and more just place for future generations. So, Professor Megan Davis, go well and thank you very much for joining the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Progressive Rugby League. Okay. Thanks again, ladies and gents. Looking forward to getting back to some more rugby league-related conversations in the very near future. Catch you then.